0: the panel on RNZ National, Janet Wilson and Johnny O'Donnell today. Lovely to have you with me. Tefata order is heading to court over a couple who only want their sick baby to receive blood from someone who hasn't received the COVID vaccine. The baby, understood to be at Starship Hospital, is in need of open heart surgery. The health authority says the decision to make a court application was made with the best interests of the child in mind, and following extensive conversations with the Fano. About a hundred anti-vaccination protesters carrying placards were outside the court in support of the couple. The High Court will hold a full hearing next Tuesday. So, to discuss, we have Dr. Helen Petusis Harris, an associate professor in general practice and primary health care at Auckland University, and a director of immunisation research and vaccinology, Dr. Petusis Harris kia ora. kia ora. Yeah. Parents not wanting the vaccine to be passed on to their baby through blood. Explain the facts for us, uh, Helen. Is it even possible?
1: Well, no. Um, I I guess that's um, one of the things that makes us so, you know, doubly sad—a really sick baby and um, parents that are made even more worried by what is really misinformation. So that's really unfortunate.
0: Yeah, I mean, a uh, certainly a sick, sick baby. So I can imagine, uh, uh, Helen time really is of the essence. I mean, there's a hearing next week, but you'll be really hoping for a resolution extremely quickly.
1: Exactly. I mean, I think, I mean, a resolution and, and whether it's, you know, something in favour of the parents and providing what it is they're asking for, or um, you know, another alternative, which um, I guess results in the baby getting the surgery, it needs. But, you um, Altogether, pretty traumatic all round.
0: I think. Yeah. The New Zealand Blood Service website said that blood was not divided by whether donors were vaccinated or unvaccinated, and also stated there was no evidence there was any risk in using blood from a vaccinated person. So that can be, as a public health message, that can be, uh, you know, a strong message sent out to all our listeners. Really, I guess.
1: Well, that's exactly right. There is absolutely no evidence that um, that this would, would be a problem. Um, in fact, uh, it could be a bonus because <laughs> receiving some antibodies against uh, the coronavirus in a very high risk little person could be could be a bonus. Um, however, you know, if you if you do um, actually you know access blood from from selected individuals, you're sending a very mixed message. Um, so that's also problematic.
0: Yeah. Uh, Needless to say, there's a couple of uh, questions around this, but let's go to our uh, panel. They might want uh, a question or a comment. Janet Wilson.
2: Helen, I'm interested in the fact that the the family and those on on their supporters have offered to donate blood themselves and Fatu Ora has said, no, it needs to come from the blood service. Is there a medical reason for that?
1: Not to the best of my knowledge I'm not an expert on that area but as far as I understand um, that that's not a, um, there's not a scientific reason why not uh, but I, right. I think it would be good, good to get some comment actually from, from people who you know, from, from who are experts in that field.
0: And we yes will do that. I yeah. mean
2: it could well be it could well be that the blood service says we need to go through s- several um, technical um, processes. To ensure that this blood is as well kept and well looked after as as it can be, I mean, it could well be that, couldn't it? Yeah, we'll, sure, we'll I mean, there might be
1: all sorts of things. There might be all sorts of things tied up in that, and, and um, I, you know, I don't know. I'm not familiar with all that process. Um, but it would be good. It would be good to um help us all understand um what
3: that process is.
0: And we will do just that. We'll follow up on that, uh, uh, Helen uh, Johnny
3: yeah I was amazed actually how unsettling I found it seeing uh the vaccination debate being thrust back into the headlines. Um, I just found myself bracing um it, re- it took me right back. it was such an unpleasant time that moment um and thinking back to things like the parliamentary um protests uh mm-hmm. and and mandates and i think um yeah, so it's just sad really i found that that whole debate very sad, very unsettling, very divisive and and this is kind of continuing and i can't help but um i mean clearly I think you know this is a, a an outrageous request that's not based on any evidence or fact but of course this reality gap does exist in New Zealand and uh and continues to do so and so whilst it hasn't been front top of mind for a lot of us uh for a period of time um it's back in the headlines and yeah I don't know about everyone else but I found that quite unsettling and also I think reflecting on you know part of me has always wanted to lash out and get angry but then you end up down a Another rabbit hole, which is the rage hole, isn't it? You know, and how do do, do we have these conversations? Yeah,
0: a sense of here we go Mm. again, Helen. I mean, uh, Mm. to go on from Johnny, broadly, is it concerning that this sort of misinformation is being spread uh, coming from anti vaxxers?
1: Yeah, and, and, and I agree. You know, this has been sad all along to have something that you this thing called misinformation dividing us and dividing us in the community, dividing us as families, um, all driven by, by things that aren't true, um, it's, been, it's been devastating. And, you know, I hope yeah, it's been nice to see it settle for a while. And uh, I agree, this is really unfortunate.
3: And Wallace, I was just thinking, having some following on from that, having some, having had some pretty uh, turf and difficult conversations myself, just as a community member during that time. Right. I imagine this has been quite distressing for the staff handling it. Yeah. And so I, I think about those officials who are having to have those conversations that are being referenced and go through this process. I imagine that's been quite distressing for them too. Very fair point, Helen.
1: Yeah, and of course, um, you know, it's very difficult. You, you don't have a control over this. And you've got, and of course, at much as the baby, the parents who who have, are undergoing so much um, stress uh, wow. and fear are uh, all made worse. And, and all those people around who are also having to, I guess, witness this and manage this and uh, really
2: complicated,
1: you know, it, it's not a clear, to me, there's not a clear, straightforward path here.
2: Yeah. Um, I'd, I'd, Helen, how pervasive do you think this is? This this form of misinformation. Very, I think. I think it's become
1: it's become more so since the pandemic. I mean, it's a problem that's been sitting there for some time. It's been a concern. I mean, it's one of those um, issues that's been identified as a, a as a, a top. A top ten threat to global public health, so it's it's mm. it's a real issue, um, and it just seemed to go on steroids um, mm. throughout the COVID pandemic, and I think we really saw that play out. Um, and it and it at the moment, I think it's you know it's g- gathered some sort of uh, momentum with with lots more individuals sort of joining um, joining us for various different reasons. So um, it, it's, it's not an easy way forward with
0: this, I think. Now, by the way, the New Zealand Blood Service has chosen not to comment citing the impending court action. Uh, but they said, the Blood Service website said that blood was not divided by whether donors were vaccinated or unvaccinated. It also stated there was no evidence there was any risk in using blood from a vaccinated person. So, echoing uh, Doctor Patrusas Harris's comments, there, uh, Helen kia ora. Thank you very much for being with yeah. us this afternoon on the You're welcome. You're welcome. It is sixteen past four. By we before we get on get, get on to the next um, topic, Johnny. You're in Nelson, and there has uh-huh. been uh, you know the the, the 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 misinformation campaign has been everywhere in the country, but it also has been very prominent in Nelson, hasn't it? Uh-huh.
3: Yeah, it has been, Um, and also in pockets of um, places like Golden Bay as well, uh, it's been particularly prevalent. Um, But I am always surprised. I mean, it was only probably a month ago that I was wandering home one night and saw a packed out cafe here in Nelson. Uh, And when I inquired about what was going on, it was an update grey and it was again it was alarming it was this has been out of the spotlight for a while but of course meanwhile as my understanding is the membership of these groups is is growing and that misinformation and disinformation um, is continuing to build and develop and so we've got to be very very careful
0: yeah it is 17 past four. the panel uh, NZ now, uh, now uh, the topic of Finland's Prime Minister's visit, we've got a guest very, very soon on this, but a journalist was quickly shut down by uh, the Jacinda Ardern and Finnish Prime Minister Sana Marin for this question.
3: A lot of people will be wondering, are you two meeting just because, you know, you're similar in age and, you know, got a lot of, you know, common stuff there, you know, when you got into politics and stuff, or can Kiwis actually expect to see... More deals so between cool. our two countries down the line because my there first, is. I mean,
2: my first question is I wonder whether or not anyone ever asked Barack Obama and John Key if they met because they were of similar age. Yeah, we are meeting because we are prime ministers. <laughs>
0: We are meeting because we are Prime Minister. It's a shortened clip, but Ardern spoke about the trading opportunities between the countries, particularly that we import $199 million of finished products, but New Zealand only trades about $14 million worth of goods. So this has been really doing the rounds uh, in social media particularly. Jenna, I'm curious what you made of that reporter's question and Ardern's response. Well, if you'd come back to the office, and I'd been um, the news producer,
2: there, I would have given him a 100 lashings, frankly. <laughs> I think that's absolutely appalling and doesn't reflect any deep, rigorous thinking at all. It's sexist in the extreme. I thought Ardern handled it extremely well and was pretty calm. Um, I think it would have been a red, a red rag to a bull moment if that was me. Um, uh, it, that is one of the most stupid questions I think I've ever heard in many a long day, when there were so many other good questions to be asked.
0: Johnny,
3: oh, I totally agree. Um, it was a it was an incredibly stupid question. He got the serve that he deserved. Actually, um, I, I completely agree with Janet.
0: It, it, it did seem quite an extraordinary thing to say, but uh, Adun's response has been noted, uh, Jenna. It was uh, you know a particularly you know keep, keeping the focus on this really. High-level trade delegation and the really important, well, mahi that needs to happen between these two countries. Mm. So, um, mm. was the 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 gendered notion of it? You know, are you are you just are you meeting because you're two people of a similar age, two women of a similar age, was quickly flicked aside, right?
2: Well, there was so there's so much more that we need to know. I mean. Um, the Finnish Prime Minister has indicated she would like closer ties with New Zealand. And, um, given that we only produce, we only export $14 million worth of product to them, the door is open, isn't it? We need to be getting as many, um, partners uh, across the world and not just the big ones, the little ones as well, because the whole idea of globalization and, and global world trade is changing and changing dramatically. So relationships like this are very important to us, increasingly so.
0: It's an extraordinary... Have either of you ever been uh, to Finland? We we're still waiting for our guests to, to join us on this. But you know, here, here they are, Johnny. Five and a half million people, a tech powerhouse, um, being quoted as the happiest country uh, in the world, uh, Finnish schools, some of the top of the world. They value, apparently equality, it seems to be that there's so much that we could glean from this prime ministerial visit.
3: Mm. Yeah, I mean, really interesting. I must admit, I'm always a little bit sceptical when we draw um, big comparisons like this with other countries and the fact that they do it better. Um, you know, we've got our own unique culture, and this is a unique place. And so, I think we can, whilst we can always learn from others, uh, it's always a bit of a sign of our immaturity when we chase being the others. And so, this the the, the article that I was reading earlier on this had had a, had a sense of that. Having said that, I love some of the ideas and things that it was pointing to, uh, and particularly from an economic development perspective. I mean. It's an area that I get to work in uh, quite a bit through my work. And um, the emphasis on the way they're tackling their productivity challenge through investment in and R&D and human capital, that's something we do very poorly here in New Zealand. So um, I'm sure there's plenty we can learn.
0: OK, we'll come back to that um, uh, very shortly. Uh, Jan says Finland pay uh, high taxes to pay for these benefits and also almost everyone is employed and expects to be in Finland. They have a very high standard of living due to these taxes. They speak Finnish and Swedish in some areas. Uh, there's a very good article on Instagram called Living in Two Languages in Finland. I wanted to bring this up. There's a dairy in Balmoral. It's a classic, old-style corner dairy. It's red, it's empty, and it's decrepit. Add long weeds and graffiti to the mix. Towels as curtains. And it's at the centre of of a community fight. A neighbour is fighting to stop a dilapidated dairy on Auckland's Balmoral Road from being developed into housing. It'll be heard by independent commissioners uh, this week. So, look, around the panel on this, no doubt both of you have seen uh, this particular dairy. Uh, So, Janet Wilson, is it part of our heritage or is it a shocker that needs to be pulled it's nimbyism at its worst, is what it is. It's people
2: protecting their own properties over the right of other people to live in in other areas. Is, is my view. Um, this is this uh, shop has no character heritage whatsoever. It's a blight on the on the landscape. Yet they're trying oh. to have the audacity to say that this is this is really wonderful. I don't think it's anything
0: like that. A blight on the landscape isn't isn't your corner dairy. Uh, a key part of our New Zealand DNA, you know, the place where memories are born, the place where you'd buy your spaceman cigarettes, the place where you'd buy your sherbets. It might look a shocker now, Janet Wilson, but buildings can be done up.
2: Um, yes, but clearly the owner doesn't wish to do that. So if the owner doesn't wish to do that, and she wants to tear it down and build a couple of townhouses, why shouldn't she be allowed to do that? Johnny?
3: I, I think Jan and I are going to get along quite well. Um, I, I completely agree. This is NIMBYism at its worst. You know, NIMBYism has been a massive handbrake on, on our housing stock in this country, which has uh, partially led to a housing crisis. I think we're also very selective about what we consider heritage and can become quite obsessive about buildings in particular it's just uh, with low you, cultural value.
0: Yeah, but 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 you, you you're putting your values on something that is so important to all of us growing up. You both call the corner dairy low cultural value. Uh, mm. I mean, it might look a little shocker now, but so does the St James and Queen Street. No one's saying pull that down and put up apartments to house citizens in a vibrant CBD. But mm, there's no, no but there's that... no
2: comparison. There's no comparison between mm. the St James and this dairy. This dairy could be rebuilt, yes, and refurbished, but why should it when, in fact, we, we've got a housing shortage? Mm.
0: All right. Uh, Very, very interested to hear what do you think on that. Uh, And if you are in Balmoral, if you live near to the day, I'd love to hear your take on that. Do you think it's a part of our key heritage DNA or actually is it NIMBYism at its very, very worst? We've discussed this before, but it's a really good one to return to, if not for a reminder of how short-lived some of our appliances can be. Consumer NZ is calling out the high cost of repairing tech and the lack of spare parts available in Aotearoa. And they have launched a petition calling for a repairability label. New Zealanders throw about 97,000 tonnes of unwanted or broken electrical waste out every year. Apparently, it's one of the highest per capita amounts in the OECD. Consumers Product Test Manager Dr Paul Smith is with us. Dr Smith, kia ora. Cura. we've talked about this before, haven't we? But I'm fascinated by this. Um, but a repairability label—that is interesting. What would that mean?
4: Yeah, so we wouldn't be the first to do it. So the, the the point of it is, when you're buying a new appliance, device, whatever product it is, you don't get a lot of information beyond the price and the brand reputation, and you know you get most of that from the marketing that they push out. So if you're trying to find something that is repairable and durable, you've not got a lot to go on. And the repairability label is a way of essentially putting a a score for repairability at the point of sale next to the price. We're not the first. France did it in 2021, and, and they've been running it successfully for the last couple of years.
0: Oh, France have done it last year. So give us a concrete example. How might it work? I've got a washing machine. It's broken down after... Two years. Well, it's not working. What happens?
4: So the label's aimed at um, new products. So part of the problem is by the time you've got that washing machine and your washing machine's broken down, um, you'll probably find you can't get the parts for it um, or there's not the repair expertise or it's actually really difficult to repair. So step back a, a stage and when you're making that decision or when someone's making that decision to buy that washing machine, We want those products that are entering the market to be more repairable and essentially the manufacturers to give us a guarantee that they'll make parts available and they're starting to design these products so you can actually take them apart easily and
0: fix them. Mm, Janet?
2: Um, Paul, I find it really fascinating that you've been quoted as saying manufacturers have tied up the repair game to restrict competition. Um, which it appears from the work that you've been doing is exactly the case. How are you going to get those manufacturers to buy into the repairability label, do you think?
4: Yeah, it's a good question. And the way France have done it is they've mandated that they have to produce the label. But they've been quite clever and they've said, we're not going to directly police what you're doing with the label. We'll leave that up to you. So they've seen manufacturers like Apple and Samsung sort of call each other out on it and say, hey, you've given your iPhone quite a score there and uh, we don't think it's that that high. So how have you got it that big? And we've found lots of other independent groups starting to call them out. And I think what what they're seeing is, is at the moment repairability is difficult and it's expensive. So a lot of manufacturers don't do it because they don't see the case. But the point of the label is it makes it a sort of business as usual. And when one of them starts to do it, it's a point of competition. It's actually something they can compete on. And I think that's what right. we're starting to see happen.
2: What's, what's that's changed? quite inspired. well, Because you gonna, make them the policemen, don't
0: yeah. you? I was going to say, though, Paul, uh, picking up on Janet, manufacturers have tied up the repair game to restrict competition. It's quite a strongly worded thing to say. What, you affect, what you're saying is that manufacturers are making things obsolete by design.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot of evidence that, um, that that's happening. And it's sim- it's it's simple things in terms of the services, like, um, you know, a lot of manufacturers will restrict you to only using their own authorized repairers. Um, an example we found is Microsoft in New Zealand say you've got to use an authorized repairer, but they don't actually have any in the country. So they have oh. to send that, we assume, overseas to get it to get it repaired. And then there are there are technological fixes like um, you might have heard of part pairing. And that's what some of the the tech device manufacturers do that say unless you're an authorized manufacturer and you've got all the correct diagnostic software, if you replace a part or repair a part, the software shuts down the device because it's not authorized. And that's starting to open up now. But there are little tricks in there that prevent anybody and not just somebody at home. But just an independent repairer having a go.
0: Johnny.
3: Yeah, this is really interesting because I, I haven't considered repairability as a metric on a product before, um, but I'm very, very interested in uh, all the various different expectations that we've now got on on manufacturers, and rightly so, thinking about things like carbon footprint as well, and how we want that information to be really transparent. But actually, repairability is a really sound one because it's not only about um, reducing our environmental footprint, but it's also where it hits people in the pocket in terms of the life lifetime of that product and the resale value of it too. We're pretty lucky here in Nelson. Uh, we have a thing called the Repair Cafe, uh, which is run by the Nelson Tasman Climate Forum. So there's a big local movement here right. around repairs. Um, but to your point, I know that they've, they struggle with some of the newer stuff in terms of the actual repairability of it. So I think L- it's a big issue.
0: Listen to this, poem, Kiara Wallace. I recently needed to replace a fridge. In excellent condition, as no one in Dunedin and regasses anymore. I'm told it's common. It seems crazy. And now I'm working out what to do with the previous fridge rather than send it to landfill. Here you have one example, Paul, of an excellent fridge. gone burgers.
4: Absolutely. And I think it's one of many. And I actually found out not so long ago. I assumed all old fridges were degassed and um, dealt with in the correct manner, how you'd expect, right? They were recycled, we reclaimed the metals, we took out all the harmful gases. It turns out there are no rules that force that to happen. So if if you want to do it, you can do it and you pay to have it done usually. Right. But stories, you don't have to.
0: Right. The stories get worse. We just had a printer copy at work, paper jam. The technician said it was uneconomical to repair. New printer delivered four grand. <laughs> Okay. Oh, my Lord. Hey, Paul, thanks for opening a can of worms here on the panel. You're welcome. Oh, wow. Uh, (laughs) Paper jam, four grand. Dr. Paul Smith, Consumer Product uh, Test Manager there. That is an absolute shocker.